Welcome to the Freedom City Church podcast, a podcast designed to help your faith thrive. We hope you enjoy today's message. We have been talking about discipleship recently, haven't we? We're talking about the idea of being a disciple. And I think, for me, I've been really mulling on this, chewing on this, trying to look to different people and try and understand what their understanding of discipleship is. And obviously, you go into the scriptures, which is very important. Uh, I really, really encourage you on the 14th of September to come and join us for our discipleship night with Steve, Pastor Steve Cawthorn. He is an absolutely amazing man. He's, um, he's now my mentor and my spiritual director. So if you don't know what a spiritual director is, like he's someone who basically is speaking into my life, asking about my spiritual life. He's uh, helping lead me in the ways of the spirit in a way that I've never had before. And it's been game changing. Who wants something game changing in their spirituality? I want that. So often what we do is we come to this point in our, our faith where we're like, I'm not doing well enough. I'm trying, I'm pushing, and I'm not doing well enough. I think one of the issues that we have is that we, we're looking at the wrong things. I know that sounds like a very obvious statement, but I wanna, I wanna reference something uh, Stu spoke about recently. When, he, when Stu got up and preached to us, that was such an amazing message. I don't know if you're here, but you can listen to it online. And he was talking about, one idea he was talking about is presentation and representation. Obviously, listen to the rest of Stu's message because this doesn't talk about all of what Stu said. But presentation and representation. And I'm, like I said, listen to Stu's message. But one thing that really stood out for me was that part. And I, I gave an example. I thought about it and I Googled it. And uh, you look at the example of a courtroom. You have the witness statement. You have presentation is what happens in reality, the facts, the witness statement the truth. Representation is then how the lawyer will take those, that information and spin it to evoke a response. Focusing on certain points to spin the truth in their favour. So that's not the whole thing of representation, but let's think about that in the sense of some of our faith or some of our others have experienced a represented version of Christ that has been influenced by the culture that we live in. Some of us have experienced a represented version of church in Christ that has been spun to evoke a response. And some of you might realize that. Some of you might not realize that. And I'm not here to poo-poo the church. What I'm saying is I'm here to focus on Jesus. Who wants to really know Jesus? Who wants to really, really know Jesus. I was thinking about the the um the word yada. I've spoke, I've speaking about it all the time. The Hebrew word yada means to know Jesus. So Adam and Eve knew each other. They they knew each other intimately. And with Jesus, with God, to know God, yada is that face to face moment. When's the last time that you were face to face with someone? I've been face to face with Megs. I go face to face with my boys. I love them. So I get in there, I get in their face and I tell them that I love them. But it's a really intimate, special place. And some of us 
desire, I think actually all of us desire that place. We all want to have that face-to-face with God. But some of us might struggle. Some of us have experienced a represented version of Christ that has been influenced by the culture we currently live in. At the end of this, I'm going to get you all to sit in groups and just share a few questions with each other. Because I want you to learn from each other and I want to learn from you. So whether it be through the media, I'm church and media just don't mix, do they? If you want, if you want to see the media just tear to shred something, look at the church. Obviously, there are some things that the church needs to account for because we're called to a higher standard. But we get a represented version of who Christ is by the way that the church might represent Christ. Whether it be through a misguided leader, whether that's me, it's not me, but please tithe 100% next week, or whether it be through our own understanding, we might, have a, we might see a version of church in Christ that is not the way it's meant to be. So I've got, you can chuck the first slide up next, the crucified Christ. I was going to call this message, follow Christ, not culture. So there'll be a lot of talking about culture within this. But ultimately, the crucified Christ. Who knows that verse in Corinthians where Paul says, I came to you not with eloquent words or wisdom, but I came to you lowly, preaching Christ and Christ crucified. You know, for me, that, that hit me years ago, that I don't want to come to you and spin this truth to sound wise and eloquent. If you walk away here looking at the crucified Christ, that is good. That is good. So some of our church, though, culture has been viewed through the eyes of secular culture and we view success by the parameters of business models and culture as well. All this is done to evoke a response. So some of the things that we might look at is numbers, we might look at vibe, we might look at social media presence, we might look at all these things like cash flow and whatnot, we're like, bam, God is good in this place. Whereas there's this little church like us, or a church down the road, or a church that recently has, has stopped meeting together, something told them that the five, seven elderly people who are meeting together did not quantify or equate to a church. Therefore, they decided that we needed to shut down. Whereas I say we're two or three gathered in the name of Jesus, the Spirit of God is. The church is not a building, but it is a people. I really want us to to focus on that the church is not defined by secular culture or the success of secular culture, but is defined by Christ. Yeah? So my point is, I want us to really, really, really know Jesus. I want us to know him, to know the fruit of his spirit in our lives, And I want us to break the walls of expectation saying that if this and this happened, then Jesus is Lord. If this and this happened, then the church is successful. Now, I want us to say the church is successful 
because Christ died and rose again. Come on. The crazy thing is, when we talk about discipleship, is that even the original disciples who walked with Jesus, the, the real McCoy, we get this, this version of we get to see Jesus through the Bible and through the Holy Spirit. We experience the person of Christ. But the original disciples walked with him. What's the best way to know someone? God will walk with them, live with them, eat with them, sleep in the same house that they slept. You know, get to really, really know them. So the disciples knew him directly. They got to experience the reality of Jesus firsthand. But... When we read the Gospels, we see that the disciples were not exempt from cultural influence. Actually, they are our greatest biblical examples of how culture can influence even the most well-intentioned people. Yet, we see the issue that the disciples had is that they were heavily influenced by the culture of the time to think that Jesus was going to be a political, economical, and military leader who would fight on behalf of the Jews and help them return to governmental and economic glory. You know, when we talk about Jesus entering uh, Jerusalem on the donkey, everyone was so surprised because they thought he would come on a chariot, this golden chariot with big horses, yet he came lowly on a donkey, saying that your idea of the kingdom and my idea of the kingdom are not the same. And so when we look at Jesus and the disciples, their idea of Messiah and who the Messiah ended up being were not the same. So even the disciples, the people were like, wow, the disciples, they got it so wrong. And Jesus made a point of them getting it so wrong. Because he wants us to know that as a disciple, you might not fully understand the personhood of Christ, what it means to follow Christ, but that's okay because you don't get kicked out of the disciplehood. You are still a disciple, yet what are you going to change? How are you going to look at things differently? So when we read these passages that I've got coming up next, let's keep in mind that these disciples were not perfect their backgrounds, expectations, cultural influences may had made it, uh, but they were influencing them, but they, yet they had still made the decision to follow Christ. So when we read these next passages, just keep that in mind, that these disciples aren't, they're not old, they're young men who are heavily influenced by culture, who are trying to follow a Christ who is teaching a new kingdom. Yeah? All right, let's go. Well, this first person's not a disciple, but I would say he deserves to be a disciple. It's actually John the Baptist. Because if you know the story of John the Baptist, he was pretty important for the coming of Jesus Christ, yeah? So, the next, let's go to the first verse. John the Baptist was a voice in the wilderness who prepared the way for Jesus. But the thing is, he actually had doubts about Jesus being the Messiah he had boldly proclaimed. I was thinking about this. I get to write a lot of references for people. People are like, hey, Andrew, can you write me a pastoral reference? And I'm like, yeah, this person's awesome. They climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, you know, all these sorts of things. And I'm like, when I give that reference, I'm like, I, I'm giving that in faith that that person will not do my reference wrong. I'm giving that in faith saying, hey, I'm giving you a reference. 
I'm testifying to your character. I'm testifying to who you are. Please don't stuff it up. But it does happen. But John the Baptist, in Matthew 11, verses 1 to 3. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. There were 201 small towns in Galilee. It wasn't this big epicenter. It was Hilton, White Gum Valley, Picton. It was 204, 204, sorry, small towns. There was not one place in Galilee that was like, I come here, this is the walk of fame. No, it was a whole bunch of small towns. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, this is John the Baptist. John the Baptist, prepare ye the way of the Lord. John the Baptist, are you the one to come or should we expect someone else? What? Have you ever read that before? Are you the one who needs to come or did I get it wrong? Did I stuff up my reference? Is there someone else to come? Two key points to remember though. John the Baptist had been thrown in prison by Herod. So when you're in prison, I would imagine you'd think differently. But John had perhaps been in prison for over a year when he asked this question, and he knew that he was likely to be executed soon. So he wanted to make sure. He's like, oh, are you actually the Messiah? Because I, I bet my life on it, you know? Are you actually the Messiah? That's crazy thought. Because we don't think of John the Baptist as this guy who was like, hold up, Jesus. I think I I think I meant to get Jesus. Ah, I got the wrong, I got the wrong man. I got Jesus instead of Jesus. You know, we have to understand that people in the Bible, apart from Jesus, were not exempt to the influence of culture. Because Jesus was not being received as the Messiah by the Israelites. Why does this matter? Jesus was being strongly rejected by the leaders of Israel, the Pharisees, Sadducees, Sadducees, and the Sanhedrin. Amid these circumstances, it is understandable that John the Baptist would have doubts. Why? Because Jesus did not care about popularity. He did not care about worldly success. He did not go about things the way that he thought we thought that he would. Let's look at some reasons, though, why John might have doubts in his mind. So Jesus got baptized by the Holy Spirit by John. And then what did Jesus do? He took 40 days off. He disappeared into the desert for 40 days. Whereas you've got this military, political, economic battle on your hands. And Jesus is like, All right, I'll see you in 40 days. John the Baptist is like, how do I cover for you for 40 days? Preaching in small towns throughout Galilee and Judea instead of going straight to the temple in Jerusalem, which he did end up going to, which was the epicenter of religious and political power. John the Baptist, Jesus was like, I'm going to go through the small towns. I'm going to go into the, through the backwater places. I'm going to speak to the individuals. I'm going to heal people with leprosy which was against Jewish law. I'm calling, he called an absolute outcast of crews, people, to be his disciples. Fishermen, tax collectors, and Simon the Zealot, aka a domestic terrorist. 
Did you know that one of Jesus' disciples was a terrorist? A terrorist. So why do you think John the Baptist is like, hold up, man. You called a terrorist to be one of your disciples. That is not good for my reference. He focused mainly on the 12 instead of the thousands. A lot of the stories that we hear where there's 5,000 people around, you know, the, 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 mount, the Sermon on the Mount was not to the people around, it was to the 12 disciples. They just happened to be watching. You know, Jesus he said that the faith of Gentiles was greater than the faith of the Jews. This caused the Jewish people, who everyone thought he had come for, to actually reject and despise Jesus. So John is sitting in his prison cell being like, maybe I got this wrong. Are you the guy before the guy, Jesus, or are you supposed to be the guy? Is there another person who's coming? John's inability to separate himself from cultural ideas of success, popularity, and fame caused him to stumble in his faith as the life and truth Jesus lived was not represented to be more palatable or to evoke a response. Jesus lived the only true life so others could see what true life looks like. Whereas we expected, nowadays, we would say, all right, Jesus, make sure you get the YouTube channel going. Make sure that you have a TikTok going, Jesus. Make sure you've hired a social media guy, Jesus. Make sure that you have all these speaking engagements, Jesus. Make sure that you, you don't say anything unruly. Make sure that you... Jesus didn't care. Because he came to bring countercultural kingdom. John the Baptist, who would have thought? Here's a low-hanging fruit one. Let's go to the next person. Judas Iscariot. This is low-hanging fruit in regards to for people being a, being a lousy disciple. Judas was a lousy disciple. I'm just going to say it straight up. He was, he's, he was the bottom of the rung for the disciplehood. But I want to show you how culture impacted Judas to be this way. John 12, verses 1 to 4. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, Why, Jesus, my rabbi, who called me, my teacher, why, Jesus, was this perfume not sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Next part, uh, next, another verse, Matthew 26, 14 to 16. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Judas had recognized Jesus' ministry as an opportunity to make money. Wealth, affluence. You can see his reaction to Mary that he didn't understand the greater picture. 
Jesus was so fixated, Judas was so fixated on accumulating money that he ended up using Jesus' ministry as a money-making scheme for himself. And Judas only betrayed Jesus after Jesus said, I'm going to the cross to die, to be crucified. It was only after that Jesus said, I need to go to the cross, it is the will of the Father, that Judas then said, hold up, this is going to end? This ability to make money is going to end? This ability to thief and to, to travel around and to be honoured and invited to different places and to be recognised and to be supported by, by people is going to end? So what he did was he took this last opportunity to betray Jesus for a final pay. The way I kind of think about it, I'm a sports person, it's like someone who's been with one team for a very long time. Then you get something called as people's final opportunity to get a big contract. So as they get towards the end of their career, they're like, I'm going to leave the team I've been with the whole time because that team is going to offer me more money. It's like, all right, in my head, I need to make more money. So I'm going to betray and not stay loyal. And I'm going to go and make one last payday. You know, Judas, I could imagine what he'd been saying to, to Jesus the whole time. Hey, why don't you sell parts of your robe to people? Why don't you, like, you know, the oil that you get from Israel, Jesus? Yeah, why don't you sell some oil? And went, oh, Jesus, you know, you, you can monetize that YouTube video. All this sort of thing. Judas would have been so focused on financial affluence and wealth that he lost the bigger picture throughout it all. Because Jesus... The light of the world, the Messiah, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, were teaching them how to live in this world, yet Judas could not see it to the point that he betrayed him. John couldn't understand why Jesus wouldn't seek popularity. Judas couldn't understand why Jesus would give up a whole bunch of money. Then we have the man himself, Peter. Or we call him Simon Peter. In Matthew 16, 21 to 23, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day to be raised. And Peter took him aside. This, you have to understand this part. Jesus was a rabbi with authority. There are only three or four rabbis with authority in the whole of the Bible. What that means is they had the ability as a rabbi with authority to teach a new gospel. Whereas the rabbis had to teach what their rabbi taught them. Where a rabbi with authority could say, no, I will teach a new gospel, a new truth. So you have Peter, this young blood, he would have been a teenager probably still at this time. He went up to Jesus and said, far be from you, Lord, that this shall never happen to you. And what did Jesus do to Peter? This is one of the worst burns in the whole Bible. Get behind me, Satan. Oh! Imagine being Peter. And Jesus has just said, you are Satan. Get behind me. That hurts. You are a hindrance to me, but you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men, of culture, 
and what culture has imposed upon the church to say this is success. Then we look at the betrayal of and arrest of Jesus. And John Peter tries it again in John 18 verses 1 to 11. When Jesus spoke these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook, Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. He didn't say, I'm Spartacus. No, he didn't do that. He was like, I am the guy that you're looking for. He just, yep, that's me. Jesus who betrayed him was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I am the guy. I'm the one you're looking for. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of, of those whom he gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon, Peter, having a sword, drew and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? Peter was still so determined that this was not the pathway of Jesus Christ, the crucified Christ, that he chopped a man's ear off. He was so determined that Jesus, no, 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 you've got it wrong, Jesus. This is not what success is. This is not what being in the kingdom of God is. That he chopped the ear of a servant off. We see Jesus' determination to go to the cross. That's why this sermon is called the crucified Christ. Jesus knew what his future was in the world of the Father. And he was at peace with his pathway. But Peter could not fathom the suffering and pain that they would be part of Jesus' thinking. Why would you reject popularity, reject financial gain, yet accept death upon a cross? So we see Peter try and rebuke Jesus, tell him what he should do. This was culture, again speaking, hedonism, the pursuit of pleasure and the absence of pain. And Jesus was all too aware. Jesus going to the cross and what seemed to the Jews to be another failed attempt to redeem the Israelites. Jesus wasn't the first Messiah to come to set, to set Israel free. He was the, he, there were many people who came to, and attempted to set the, the um Israelites free. There's a people called the Maccabees. The Maccabees were those people who rose up and said, let's we'll redeem and set Israel free from Rome. And everyone thought Jesus was coming to do that. Gathering people, let's go, let's go, come on. We're going to return to political, economic and um, governmental power. Yet Jesus rejected all that and people were like, all right, just another guy, someone else who tried. This is evident, because what did the disciples do after Jesus died? They went fishing. They went back to what they were doing before. They were like, all right, Jesus died, nothing's changed. Good try. I'm going to go back and do what I did before. 
Jesus had to come back to them, cook them breakfast, and say to them, actually, we're good. We won. Now go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Because we've got it. Because the, the kingdom that Jesus came to bring was not one based on political, governmental, economic power. It was one with a spiritual freedom where we have been risen with Christ from the grave. Therefore, my eternity is secure. His focus was not on popularity or human success. His focus, Jesus' focus was, am I with God? And am I great with God? Am I with God? Do I know him? Am I with him for eternity? Am I great? Am I brought into the throne room? Am I sitting with Christ? Am I sitting with the Father on the throne? Am I great with God? He didn't care about human success. So my question today is how long is our spirituality going to be chained to church culture, secular culture, as we see the church and our faith as successful or unsuccessful? We don't look at the church or to culture to define whether we are with God. We look to Christ. And that defines how successful the cross was. I'm with God, you're with God. We're seated on the throne with God. Next to Jesus. Man, let's change our paradigm of thinking. Our focus shouldn't be about being unable to count success in our fingers. Oh, so successful, we had so many people come to church. Oh, we have all these new programs, we're doing all these sorts of things. Oh, I feel like I've broken something because I've now read my Bible for a year straight. I'm successful. No, our focus should be Am I with Christ? And if He looks at me, will He say, Well done, good and faithful servant? I want you to take a moment now. Just five minutes. Can you pull up that quote? Yeah. Christianity as an ongoing expression of Jesus' story lived out in the lives of individuals in the heart of society is a beauty that can redeem the world. Yeah, I've been talking to Stu and Molly sent me a few Brian Zahn quotes recently. And I've started reading this word of this book called Beauty Will Save the World. There's something that we need to change in our thinking to see the beauty of Christ and the beauty of God in creation. Because if we can embrace that, we might start to see that Christ has something so much different than what we're currently looking at. I might be looking at the, I might be looking at the building, the signage, all these sorts of things. Am I looking that there are people together in the spirit? brought together in community, loving community? Am I seeing that Christ died a, sin, uh, a sinner's death for sinful people who had no option? 
Am I looking at that or am I looking at what culture says success is? So can you break into three groups? We'll just, uh, over here, the back two rows, and just here, Dave, if you're free, Nancy, if you're free, you're more than welcome to join as well. And if you can bring up the next slide, I just want to ask you to ask three questions. What is it about Jesus that captivates you the most? What do you think pleases Jesus when he looks at the church? If popularity, wealth, and hedonism are not of importance to Christ, then what do you think is? Five minutes, break into a group, have a chat. You don't have to have an answer. You can just listen. But you've got five minutes. Yeah, that's a good one. 
Just wrapping it up. What place is Jesus when he looks at the church? Uh, just wrapping it up now. And we'll, we'll finish up and you can continue your conversation if you'd like to afterwards. But I just want to finish with with one verse, I'll just pop it up here for you to look at as Christ's, Christ's example. If there's anything in encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let, let each of you look not to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. For though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him 
the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to glory of God the Father. What a beautiful picture of what it means to be Christian. The example that Christ has given us. And my focus is love. And I, I ask this question now, I'm starting to ask myself this question a lot more real, realistically, like, am I truly motivated by love? And if I am, we will see the fruit of Christ in our lives. Let me pray for you. Father God, we thank you for your love. Lord, we thank you that human success is not what we seek. But Lord, let us seek to be motivated by love. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Freedom City Podcast. If there is any way that we can help you survive and thrive in your everyday life, we'd love to connect with you. If you'd want to know more about who we are, just head to www.freedomcityfremantle.com. Until next time, take care.